0: We have another epic story from the book of Judges, if you'll turn there. I'm pretty excited about this one. Been waiting on this one just like last week. So we're going to jump back now. And if you're joining us, we're in a series on Judges, which is an Old Testament book. We're going to jump back to ancient times, 1100 BC. So over a thousand years before the birth of Christ is this time frame that we, that we have this story take, take place. And, and ancient, the ancient world, it's rough. The ancient world is rough. You either conquer others or you are conquered. You either are killing or you are being killed. That's how the ancient world worked. And if you've done research, you have some of the great nations that are popping up. Babylonia, Assyria, the Persian Empire, Rome. Anyone ever seen the movie 300 with the 300 Spartans? All that's this kind of time period we're talking about. And this is a a rough place to live. It's a rough day and time to live in. And Israel is living in this promised land, this land that's been given to them and promised to them by God. It's the land of Canaan. And if you remember, they were supposed to occupy the land and drive out all the inhabitants, all the other nations living there. And one of the big, Israel's biggest mistakes, they did not drive them out. They left these nations there and these nations will become a thorn in their flesh for generations, generations, and generations to come. And that's what we find in the book of Judges. And so we've introduced the idea of cycles and Israel would rebel and God would allow a country to come and occupy them. And then they would cry out to God. God would bring a deliverer or a, a judge, a savior to come and save them. There'd be peace. And then the generation would die and it would start all back over again. And we're going to see that. Last week we had the great story of the guy named Ehud and the epic story that, that, uh, that we looked at last week as he came and delivered the people. Uh, and we have another good one today. So for 80 years, the people enjoyed rest under Ehud's leadership. It was the longest peacetime in the book of Judges. And so if, you, if we take ourselves, one of my goals in this series is, is I want us to try to take ourselves back and understand this isn't some fairy tale book. These are events that actually happen. And let's try to go back and live in the history of what happened. So you've been delivered as a captive people from this ruler that, that rules over you, and you've been, been delivered by a guy named Ehud, not Dehud, but Ehud, and now you've had peace for 80 years. It's a long time, 80 years, and a whole generation comes and grows old and dies, and all they know is peace, and they're being led under Ehud, but the problem is as soon as Ehud dies... The people go back. The Israelites go back and they go back into their idolatry. And one of the things we see in in the book of Judges is we see Israel, every time they get in trouble, they cry out to God, and God delivers delivers them, and for a season of time, could be ten years, twenty years, eighty years, they appear to follow God. But here's what we see over and over in the book of Judges is while they appear to be following God, it is not heart transformation. It's simply behavior modification. They simply walk away from a few behaviors that they were doing, but their hearts are far from transformed. Therefore, they go back. We talked about the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. The worldly sorrow is just kind of, I don't like what's happening to me now. Maybe I should cry out to God and say, God, I'm sorry. Where godly sorrow is this repentant heart that says, I desire to know God and do what he asked me to do because that's best. And it leads to repentance. It leads to a changed heart. So one, behavior modification, just temporarily changes behavior. Heart transformation permanently alters inward character, our loves, and our desires. At Hill City, we are about... Heart transformation. I could care less about getting us to obey a bunch of things if our hearts are far from that. And that's where we find Judges, Judges chapter three. That's where we were in last week. The very end, chapter thirty-one. A very unfortunate thing is we don't have much. We don't have any details on this. But another after Ehud, another judge rises up, and it says in verse thirty-one: After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed six hundred of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. And that's all we get. I wish we had the story. I mean, think, 600 Philistines. An ox goat, if you don't know, is a little pole with a little a thing on. You get to get to ox to do what you want him to do with. He grabs one, whips 600 Philistines. I'd love to hear the story. We don't have it, unfortunately. So we're going go to go into chapter 4 because we have a wonderful story there. And so, again, cycle goes. This this They're delivered by this... Uh, There's Shamgar who who whoops a bunch of Philistines. They rebel again. God sends another king to conquer them. Judges chapter 4. Let's look at it. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. After he had died and after the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar. So our main character on the evil side here is King Jabin. The commander of his army was Sisera. There's our other kind of uh, enemy, our villain. So we have Jabin and Sisera. Sisera is the commander. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Haggaiim. Did I get it right? None of you know either, so I'm going to keep going. (laughs) Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron And he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now, the land of Canaan was made up of several city-states, each with its own king. And here we have in front of us this guy named King Jabin. Now, the title of King Jabin is, quote, King of Canaan, which here's what that tells us, that all these nations of Canaan have come together in an alliance and King Jabin is the king that they've kind of elected over the alliance. So he is the head dog of all Israel's enemies and God allows King Jabin with his uh, mean commander of his army sister to come and occupy Israel. Now, if you remember in, in, in Joshua, Israel defeated Canaan. They defeated these people. Remember, they were told, defeat them, drive them out. They defeated them, but they didn't drive them out and now it has come back to haunt them. And if you're King Jabin, you remember from the stories that your capital has been burned by these people called the Israelites, and you are out for revenge. And so, being a king that's out for revenge, we know that he enlists this guy named Sisera as his general. And Sisera was the most severe oppressor the Israelites have faced to date. This guy's mean. And now, if you look in your Bibles, by the way, you're going to want your Bibles today, at least on your phone if you don't have a hard Bibles. We're going to read a lot. But if you look at your Bibles, chapter 4 is this story that we're going to read. And then chapter 5 is the same story in a different version. So this is kind of cool for this story. We get chapter 4, which is just the historical, this is what happened. And then chapter 5 is, is Deborah, who we're going to see who she is in a minute. It's her account of what happened, and it's a very poetic kind of poetic version of this. She wrote a song kind of commemorating this story. And so as we look at this story today, I'm going to be jumping back between chapter 4, which is just the historical kind of black and white, here's what happened, and chapter 5, which is very much the color version of, all right, here's what really happened type story. Okay, and so that's what we'll do. In Jewish tradition, it was very common to commemorate special events with song or poetry. And that's what's happening in Judges chapter 5. So we'll be bouncing back and forth between 4 and 5 today. And so this is kind of the fun part of the story because we get kind of both historical and poetic view of these accounts. But under Deborah's account in chapter 5, we get a little better idea what it was like to live under the command of Sisera. Remember, Sisera is is the commanding... Army of the people that have conquered you. So we are the Israelite people conquered by this guy named Sisera, and he oppresses for 20 years. Now, knowing the ancient world, when it says oppresses, that is not just, oh, we had to pay some taxes. Your life under Jabin and Sisera is a living hell, it's a nightmare. In Judges 5.6, she'll say this, Deborah, about those days. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anah, so in these days, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and the travelers kept to the byways. It's this poetic version she's telling us, under the command of Sisera as an Israelite, you do not take the highway when you're going to sell goods, when you're trying to travel from place to place, you do not walk down the main road because it is far too dangerous. You have no idea what will happen to you and you are fair game for anything that anyone wants to do to you. And so the Israelites are sneaking through the woods and through the desert and, 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 and behind the mountains to, to do what they need to do. And for 20 years, they're under these people. Imagine that. Many of you aren't even 20 years old yet in here for 20 years you've grown up under this hard strong oppression of king jabin and his mean general sisera and here's what they have going for them this conquering nation of yours just to give us an idea they have 900 chariots now to us it's like okay big deal 900 chariots In those days, think about the strategic advantage of 900 chariots. These are chariots which are pulled by horses. They're made of iron. On those chariots, usually are one or two people, one driver and one person to shoot you with something. And the the hard thing about a chariot is, unlike face-to-face, hand-to-hand, man-to-man combat, a chariot can circle around you and you can never get within striking distance and they can just pick you off. And to the Israelite army, this oppression oppression of King Jabin and Sisera must seem insurpassable. Like we cannot, we can do nothing, but they have 900 chariots of armor. And they finally get desperate enough where they cry out to God and say, God, you've got to save us. But the problem is it's just worldly Sorrow. They just want to be saved from the enemies. They don't really want to follow God. What they needed to cry out was what David cried out in Psalms 51.10. God, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. All Israel cries out is, God, help, save us from Jabin." And so we have this impossible enemy that Israel has, this, this, this place, that, this king that has far outmatched them in battlefield power. And to go against this king would be a massacre. And I, and I, and I think about modern equivalents or kind of our time day. If you've ever done research on the massacre at Wounded Knee. When the U.S. Cavalry destroyed an Indian population because they had far superior weapons. That's what Israel is up against. So they cry out to God for help. Verse 4. Now Deborah. A prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. And she used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramar and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came to her for judgment. So now we're introduced, so we have Jabin and Sisera, who's our evil, think uh, Star Wars, the dark side. right? And every time we hear Jabin and Sisera, I want you to hear that... You know that Darth Vader breathing the, doom, 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 right? That's what that's, and now we're introduced to our Jedi side, right? of of our of our of our king or our judge over the Jedi, uh, whose name is Deborah. Now this is interesting. She's a female judge, which in those days is very rare to have a female leader, and she's some sort of governmental leader instead of a military leader. And so we have this vision of Judges, of her sitting underneath these palm trees, kind of dealing over the affairs of Israel. And God raises her up as this prophetess and is going to say, hey, now it's time. We're going to do something about King Jabin and Sisera. Verse 6. So Deborah, she summoned Barak, the son of Abadomim, The Kadesh, I'm not even going to try, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and from the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, that's that evil general, Darth Vader, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops. And I will give him into your hand. So now we're introduced to our players for this story, this epic story of, of Israel's battle. And so we have on the dark side, King Jabin and Sisera, and on the Jedi side, the weak Jedi rebels. We have Deborah, the leader, the judge, the prophetess. And Barak, the commander, this obedient servant who will go raise this group of men, originally 10,000, and then he gets another 30,000 later, to go against this army that has 900 chariots plus soldiers. Now, Barak's nickname in Judges is Lightning, which is such a cool nickname. God revealed to Deborah that Barak... Lightning was to assemble and lead this army, and he's going to draw out Sisera's army. Remember, they're outgunned. Israel's outmanned. They're outgunned. They've got to have some type of strategic advantage. So God says, you're going to go to battle, and I'm going to draw them out by this river Kishon. There's going to be an important thing about this river. And by this river is where you will defeat King Jabin. So that's what she tells Barak. Now, if you know history, in ancient days, the battlefield was a crucial strategic advantage. Depending on your army, the type of terrain you choose to fight could end up in your victory or your defeat. And so if you're going against an army that has 900 chariots, what do chariots need to operate in to be at their most effective, to to operate most effectively? They need open terrain, right? Like if you have mountains and hills and brush and woods that you're going to fight in, then chariots are, are worthless. Chariots need hard ground. They need open terrain where they can come and circle you and just pick you off and you never even get within striking distance of them. And so God tells them, I want you to go by this river Kashan." Now, if you're familiar with rivers, what is usually by rivers? Flat plains. And Barat's going to be thinking, wait a second here. If we're going to fight 900 chariots, don't we want to go to the mountains? Don't we want to find the most dense forest we can so we can make them get off their chariots and come in foot and at least then we're going hand-to-hand, man-to-man combat. But no, they're going to go to this plain right beside a river where God's called them to go. So it appears right now the tactical advantage is against Israel. They're going to fight a far superior army in open terrain. Verse eight, Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. That's a smart guy, all right? Now, so, so if a guy comes up to you and says, hey, see those guys over there? I think you can take them. The way you want to know if he's really on your side is say, okay, you go with me and we'll go take him, right? And that's kind of what, what Barak says. She says, hey, I want you to go raise an army. I want you to go after, oh, after King Jabin and Sisera and defeat him. He's like, listen, I'm not going unless you're going with me. Now in the modern or in the ancient world, it was very normal to take important people into battle with you. This would have, would have heightened the morale of the troops. So when they would have seen Deborah as kind of out with them and going with them, their morale would have been heightened, probably helped in them raising and recruiting an army. We have this leader who's, who's going to come with, this female leader is going to come with these soldiers and say, I'm with you and God's with you and I'm on your side. And we know that he raises an army of 10,000 from his own tribe. 10,000 people, and again, when you consider what Deborah and Barak are attempting, if you're one of those 10,000 Israelites, you have just placed your life in the hands of your leaders. For you to sign up for the Israelite army to come against the conquering nation, you have just signed your death warrant. And knowing the ancient world, there's not just going to be a nice little clean execution. They're going to torture you. They will probably do some terrible things to your family by you signing up for that army. So 10,000 people, 10,000 men have signed up and says, we will go fight this impossible enemy that has these chariots. And to add to it, you 900 soldiers, you're going to fight without weapons because you're an occupied country. And as an occupied country, the thing you were not allowed to have was weapons. So imagine this. I'm Barak. Hey, we're going to go fight. Yeah, we're going to go kill these, these, uh, these evil Canaanites. Yeah, grab your pitchfork. Whoa. Grab your shovel. I mean, Israelites are grabbing whatever they have laying around. That's why the judge before grabbed an ox goat and killed 900 Philistines. So don't think this army of Israelites with spears and shields and bows and arrows and all that sort of thing. They are grabbing whatever they can find with a sharp point on it. And they're going to go, in Judges 5.8, in the poetic version, here's what Deborah says, "Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel. They had no weapons. Over in 1 Samuel, you don't have to turn there, Kind of same thing, they're raising this Israelite army against the Philistines, and here's what, uh, here's what the, the author writes. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines have said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. All right, 900 brave Israelites. They had 900 chariots. 10,000 brave Israelites. Get your shovel, your spear, and your axe. We're going to war against chariots with this promise that God's on our side. Here's what what Deborah writes in chapter 5, verse 9, about these people that would sign up for this army. My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, and you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way. To the sound of musicians at the watering places, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of the villagers in Israel. So Deborah is just in awe that 10,000 here and then another 30,000 would sign up. And she's, singing, she's writing this poem, this poem and this song. She's praising the fact that these are brave men who have just signed their death warrant. They will either either kill or be killed. A pu- I, I can't talk today, a peaceful truce is not an option. They are fighting an enemy that has them outgunned, 900 chariots of armor, no telling how many ground troops. And they're gonna go, verse nine, and she said to Barak, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. She's telling her general Barak, listen, I'll go with you, but the road the, what we're going to do here is not going to end in your glory. Now, ancient times, it was all about glory. It was all about honor, not that anything has changed today. But it was all about making a name for himself as Barak, the commander of, of, of Israel. And he'd have this great tombstone, and they'd tell his story for years. And here's what she says, Barak, you will lead this army, but you will not get the credit. This will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Ladies, it's your turn. Now, upon hearing this, Barak must have been oh, a woman. Like, this is battle. This is a man's game. What do you mean, sell to the glory will come to a woman? And Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And so what, what kind of a shock this must have been to this general, this courageous general, who's going to lead this army. He says, you're going to go, and you're going to have victory. God's promised you this, but guess what? You're not going to get the Glory. A woman is going to. Verse 10 And Barak called out to Zebulun and Naphtali and Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with them. And so you get this picture of this army coming together of 10,000 men, and again, another 30,000 will come. We learned that in chapter 5. And they're going to go attack this army. Now, Let's not get the mindset of, oh, 10,000 men, let's walk across, walk a mile or two down the road and have this battle. 10,000 men means you need this whole support system to go with them. Cooks and doctors and blacksmiths and anything you can. In in World War I, for one ground soldier, you had three support people kind of in the backgrounds helping them fight. So this is a huge endeavor to raise this group of people. And probably took months and months to get them signed up, to get them somewhat trained. Verse 12, chapter 4. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abaddonim, had gone up to Mount Tabar, Sisera, the Darth Vader character, called out all his chariots, 900 of chariots of iron, and all of men who were with him, from Herosheth, Hagomium, to the river of Kishon. And so Sisera says, All right, these Israelites? Really? They're going to come against me and my 900 chariots. He hears they've they've kind of raised up an army. And he's like, all right, we'll do this. And he sends them out towards the Israelite army. So we have this battle that's going to be brewing. Verse 14, they've been raising the army. They've been camping. They're waiting on this opportunity to attack. And Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabar with 10,000 men following him. So he's worked, he's, he's raised up an army, he's, get, he's got 10,000 men, they're up on this mountain which would be a good place to fight chariots and they're waiting and waiting and waiting in, in ancient times it was, not, it was not uncommon to have two chariots Two armies within a mile of each other, and day after day they would wait. This is a different time. Everyone's superstitious. Everyone has a different god, and and every day you would wake up and maybe you would sacrifice a pig and 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 look at the intestines and you bring your magician guys over and they'd say, okay, is today the day? Nope, the intestines aren't looking good. Okay, and they wouldn't fight. And then the next day they would do something and say, okay, is today the day? And they would look. Yes, go. And that was common. If you read many of these ancient battles, not just Israel, just in that time frame, it's very superstitious. Everyone had a God, and they ran all of, the, all of the gamut of what you would understand to really bizarre. And so Deborah believes that the Lord has told her today is the day. In verse 12 of chapter 5, she says it like this, Awake, awake, Deborah. This is, she's saying what the Lord told her. Awake and break out in a song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abbonium. And so the battle is going to start. Verse 15. And the Lord routed Sisera and all of his chariots and all of his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. So Sisera attacks with his 900 chariots. And what we get in chapter 4 is that Sisera is routed. Now that word routed means confused or chaos. And so something happens when they attack that causes this whole whole army of Sisera to go into confusion and panic and chaos. And these Israelite people with whatever weapon they had defeat this army plus its chariots. And we're left to speculate, well, what happened? We have chapter 5, verse 19. Here's what she says in her song. We get a little better idea of what happened. Remember, they've been told to go fight by the river Kadesh in this flat place which would appear that the King Jabin would have the advantage. Verse 19. The kings came, they fought. Then fought the kings of Canaan. At Tanach by the waters of Medigo, they got no spoils of silver. They didn't win. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. Verse 21. This is the torrent Kishon swept them away. In the ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on, my soul, with might. Then loud beat the horse's hoofs, that's the chariots, with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Don't you love That's a great poem. Here's what happens. They come down, Israelites come down from Mount Tabar. They go to this area, Kishon, where this battle's gonna happen by this river. Jabin says, and Sisera, huh, well, this is gonna be easy. Look at them. They're out in the middle of this flat plain. Let's go. And as they go, here comes a rainstorm. And if you were in Missouri about a month and a half ago, you know what happens when a big rainstorm comes. Waters tend to rise and get out of their banks. And apparently as as Jabin and Sisera are attacking, rains are coming, the the waters start to grow, and they spill over into this flat area. And if you are a fighter, and you are riding in a chariot, the worst thing that could happen is the ground would turn to mud. Because your chariot has just become worthless. And that's what happens. The rivers flood, The chariots are worthless, and Israel, the Israelites, clean house. The writer, Deborah, says, from heaven the stars fought, meaning that this natural disaster that happened must have come from God who had promised they would have victory. What's what's the irony of the situation is the Canaanite God Baal that we've talked about, the Israelites' worship, you know what Baal is? He's the weather god. If you're the Canaanites, very superstitious people, how much did that just throw you for a kink? Wait a second. Baal, this God we serve, the weather God, is supposed to be on our side, and we just get destroyed because of the weather? Nice little twist in the story, a little irony there. And so Sisera's army is destroyed, and they start to retreat. Now, in ancient battles, the retreat is when the destruction happened. Usually you would fight for a little bit. One side would see, okay, we're, we're losing here. Let's retreat. And the people who were winning would take off after him, and that's when it really got ugly. Verse 15, the second part of 15. And Sisera got down from his chariot. Sisera is our Darth Vader character. And fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Heresheth Her- 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 Hagoyim. Her- and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword Not a man was left. And so they just destroy Sisera's army, but Sisera is left on foot. Presumably two reasons. His chariot's immobile now because of the mud, but also his chariot would have been more grand than all the others. He would have been decorated. He's way more recognizable than anyone else. And so he sneaks away trying to get out of town as the Israelites are coming behind, just kind of mopping up everything behind him. Verse 17, But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of jail, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazar, and the house of Hibur, the Kenite. So Sisera takes off running. And in my study, I found out it's about six miles down the road. He gets to this, this little encampment, this little village, and finds a lady named Jael, whose husband is gone. And he goes there because they are an ally. It's an ally of King Jabin. They've come together, and so he's fleeing. He's like, if I can just get six miles to this neighboring village, I can go and hide in there. And he gets there finally. He's exhausted. He's had this battle. He's been running for six miles. His people have chased him. And he gets to this lady named Jael, has this village, and goes to his, her tent, and he's thinking, Whew, I've survived. As I thought about a modern equivalent, here's what I remember. If you remember the story of, of Marcus Luttrell, the Navy SEAL. Up in the mountains, their unit comes under attack, and he goes and he hides in that neighboring village, and, those, and, the, and the villagers kind of watch out for him for five days and protect him from the Taliban. That's exactly what Sisera is doing. Verse 18 And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So she goes to Sisera, She's like, Come in. It's okay. Remember, this is an ally. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink. You've got to imagine, he's exhausted by now. For I'm thirsty. So she opened up a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand in the opening of the tent, and if a man, if an Israelite comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Just say No. So Sisera has completely entrusted himself into the hands of this ally, this woman named Jael. And he's so confident and so arrogant that he eats and he drinks and he falls asleep. But he's protected now. The problem is if you remember the prophecy that Deborah told Barak, the glory will not be yours, it will go to the hands of a woman. And so sister is asleep under this blanket. He's had nourishment. He's gotten water and milk. He, in Eastern tradition, now she's protecting him. He's under the protection of this village. And he falls asleep underneath this blanket because he's so overconfident. But while he's asleep, jail this woman, being a tent-dwelling people, living in tents in this little village, she goes to her tent and she pulls up one of the stakes that holds down the tent. And in Eastern, in this tradition the women were the ones that set, set up and tore down the tents. So she's very used to hand kind of handing a mallet and a tent peg. And she sneaks up to Jabin who's asleep. I'm sorry. Sleeps under under Sisera. Who's asleep under the rug and she takes the tent peg in her hand and she drives it through his skull. Verse 21. But the jail, the wife of Habar, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand, that she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground. The girl has some power. While he was lying fast asleep from weariness, so he died. Now, as I read this, like, is that last part really necessary? Like, the so he died part, you know? It's like, really? So Jael has chosen sides and the side is not Sisera's. She has just switched allegiance. And here's what she's thinking. Okay, we've been, we've been uh, with King Jabin here, but it looks like, yeah, they're done and there's a new kind of new, uh, new boss in town. It's called the Israelites. I'm going to take their side. And so she takes out Sisera. Verse 22. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said, Come, I'll show you the man who you're seeking. So he went into her tent and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. Now that's intense. So this woman takes out this Sisera who's this commander has been over, you know, conquering Israel for 20 years. And, and again, this is a, the ancient world. Women, don't be offended with this. But for a general to be killed by a woman would be the most humiliating thing that could have happened to her. As a matter of fact, in Judges chapter 9, we'll, we'll see later um, a few weeks, uh, another, another guy's getting ready to be killed by the Israelites, and he says to his arm bearer, draw your sword and kill me, lest a woman kill me. And so his arm bearer kills him, so he won't be killed by a woman. That's how big of a deal it would have been to be killed by a woman. And so Sisera Has fled, goes to a tent, she feeds him, she covers him with a blanket, he falls asleep, and she drives a tent peg through his skull. Now that's chapter four, and the good thing about the story is we have chapter five. Remember, chapter five is the color version, the more poetic version. And we get a little different, more poetic, more epic account of what happened with this tent peg. And as I was studying this, and and I've told you as I read the book of Judges, I'm always putting in modern characters Uh, from movies and stuff we've seen. And so this week is Star Wars and Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker's the Jedi. He's Barack and all that. And I thought as we read chapter five, it would be appropriate to have some epic music to go along with this. Because just the whole she sneaks up with a tent peg, it just doesn't quite do it. And so as we look at chapter five, I thought we could get kind of the epic screenplay version of it. Teresa, if you would help me. Thank you. This is Judges chapter 24, or 5 24. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Hibur the Kenite, of tent dwelling woman and blessed. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. She brought him with curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg, and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Cicero. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet, he sank. He fell. He lay still. Between her feet, he sank. He fell. Where he sank, there he fell. Dead. That just makes it so much better, doesn't it? Oh, I love chapter 5. When I was studying this like a month or two ago, Katie was sitting beside me. I was like, Katie, you got to hear this. This is so cool. And I've been waiting for that moment for a month, over oh, a month now. Whew. All right, I'll come back now. So, Israel's enemy sister is dead. It's time to finish off the Canaan army. Verse 23 And so on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And in the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Again, let me remind you what was at stake. As fun as, as, fun as that was and the tent peg and all that, let me remind you what's at stake for Israel. Let's take it to our day. Let's say that Hawaii revolts and they decide, you know what, we have the prettiest state out of the 50 and we kind of want to be our own country because we used to be. And so we're going to just revolt against the United States and we're going to claim our independence. And what would happen is we'd go with a few troops and maybe some, some, uh, some aircraft and we would blow up a few military things and eventually they would raise up a flag and say, all right, we're done, peace. And we would sign a peace treaty and then we would go rebuild Hawaii, the things that we destroyed and help kind of get their economy back going. That's modern day. But if Israel fails, that is not what happens and from Deborah's song, we get a perspective of what would happen if Israel fails. And this perspective we get, she writes from the perspective of Deborah, or I'm sorry, of Sisera's mother. Remember, Sisera is the, the general. And what was his mother thinking as this battle's going on? She's waiting to hear back of Sisera's victory and, how, and his glory. And this is what sh- the mom would be thinking. Sis- as Deborah writes about it, verse 28 of chapter five. Out of the window, Sisera's mother, she peered. The mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Like she's waiting for her hero Sisera to come back. Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest prince's answer. Indeed, she answers herself. Here we go. This is what would have happened if Israel had left. Have they not found and divided the spoil Meaning, they conquered the nation, they took everything and, sp- and, and, and took their spoil. A womb of two for every man. Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera. Spoil of dyed materials embroidered. Two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as his spoil. Did you see that line? A womb of two for every man. Everyone in Sisera, Sisera's army, for their rewards, would have had A couple of trophies and they would have been Israelite women that was what it was at stake if Israel would have lost but they don't lose and they have this great victory but if only Deborah and the Israelites if only those Israelite leaders and Deborah could have led the people to godly repentance Instead of just oh good uh, Jabin and Sisera they're gone now we're free great if they could have led them to godly repentance how many more lives and destruction that we're going to read about in the next few weeks would be spared because just like last time this group of people though they've been rescued will rebel from God but in chapter five Deborah tries it's the last passage we'll read she tries to turn the hearts of the Israelites' affection to God, who's just gave them this great miraculous victory. She tries with all of her might. Here's what she says of this victory. She's talking to Israel. Verse 10 of chapter 5. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys. like Tell what happened. You who sit on rich carpets. Hey, you Israelites, now that you're going to have money, like, now you can start to trade and have a business and have crops and not be killed, you're going to get money. Tell what happened. And you who walk, by the way, those of you that actually go on the highway now, talk about what God did. To the sound of musicians at the watering places, like make songs about this. Make songs about the Lord's faithfulness. There they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel, these people who obeyed God and showed faith in him. Tell about it. Then down to the gates marched the people of the Lord, meaning they can finally leave their protected cities and go out and they're free. And here's her plea to the people of Israelites, tell about it, talk about it, think about it, sing about it, pray about it. Because Deborah knows, just like us, and here's where we bring this to us. That faith is not this one time, just boom, God drops this epiphany on you, and then from now on, all of your problems are gone. I never have any more struggles. I never worry with unbelief. I never have addictions. It's not like that. So I work with a lot of millennials. A lot of millennials just hoping that God will just do something. God, just do something. Just do something. And then they kind of think that God will just like boom, and everything will be fixed in their world. That's not faith, that's not biblical faith biblical faith is I wake up today and I say today I'll serve the Lord and I serve the Lord and when I fail I trust in the gospel for my righteousness and I go to bed tonight and I sleep sleeping that my righteousness was attained on the cross and not my performance today and then tomorrow guess what I do I wake up and I'm faithful to the Lord and I go to sleep and I wake up and I'm faithful that is faith that's a Christian life. And if many of you come here and you're wanting some big emotional like boom thing where God drops this bomb and you just cry, oh, thank you, Jesus, everything's fixed. That's not faith. That's not the Christian life. And that's what Deborah's trying to tell these people. Yes, you've had this great victory in your life, but if you think this one victory is just gonna do it for you for the rest of your life, you're fools. And so she tells them. Talk about it. Sing about it. Pray about it. Because here's what she knows. These practices, and we heard these say this a ton, those practices is, are, will shape the loves and belief of Israelites. Not one big aha moment battle. That's not going to do it. But the daily grind of practices will shape them. And that's what she's trying to tell them. We tell you all the time that our practices shape our beliefs. And depending what practices I live in day to day to day will determine what I'm going to believe and pursue and live for. And one of the things we teach you, the first and primary thing that you can do as a believer is to rehearse the gospel in your life daily as a practice, to keep yourself rooted in God's love and God's faithfulness as revealed in the gospel. Every day, remind yourself of the gospel. My righteousness is through my faith in Christ and his work on the cross, period. Therefore, today I'll serve the Lord. I go to sleep. I wake up. My righteousness was attained 2,000 years ago on the cross. Therefore, today I'll serve the Lord, and I go to sleep. And that is faith that's the Christian life. It's not some emotional thing. We don't don't do fog and smoke and and big emotional power anthem songs. We just don't do that because that's not what's going to change things. That will change behavior for a while. We'll leave on Sunday. Oh yeah, let's go, everyone. But we know if real heart change is going to happen, it has to come through that power of rehearsing the gospel and living in the gospel for our salvation. And that comes through Practices, preaching to myself, rehearsing the gospel to myself, talking to myself. There's a great quote by um, a guy named C.J. Manny. He says this, most of our unhappiness in our lives comes from listening to ourselves instead of talking to ourselves. There's a practice of talking to myself. Where I wake up today and I say, listen, today, because I've been saved by faith, today I will live what God wants me to live. And listen, I don't always want to do that. You know, there's things in my life that I would rather at the moment not do what God wants me to do. But this practice of preaching the gospel says, if I want to stay, continue living in the love and the grace of God, I want to do this because that's what's best for me and I'm preaching that to myself. Like when I became a pastor, God didn't all of a sudden hit me with this thing and I don't have any temptation to sin anymore. No, it's all over me. And so I fail. But as I win, it's through preaching the gospel to myself over and over and over. A book that I encourage you guys to read, it's a real small one. It's it's by a guy named Milton Vincent. It's called A Gospel Primer or Primer, whichever however that works. I always say primer, but I think smart people say primer. Milton Vincent, a gospel primer. And the book is about preaching the gospel to yourself. Here's what he says. There is simply no other way to compete with the forebodings of my conscience, the condemning of my heart. Your heart ever condemn you because of your sin? And the lies of the world and the devil than to overwhelm such things with the daily rehearsals of the gospel. He'll say, to each and every day, you'll have forebodings of your conscience. Each and every day, your heart will condemn yourself. You'll think, there's no way God could forgive me for that. Each and every, way, every day, you'll buy into lies. If I just had this, then I will be happy. I'll be successful. I'll be content, whatever this is. And the way to combat that is what Deborah's trying to get the Israelites to do is preach to yourself the gospel, God's love for you, his victory for you. Each and every day. Hill City, you remember a time when you were just unwise or stupid or a bonehead and the Lord protected you? You remember a time? Anyone think of that? I can think of several. Rehearse that. God, thank you for that. I was an idiot. And by your grace, you protected me. I almost died, but you protected me. I'm going to preach that and relive that, that victory you did in my life. Hill City, can you think of a time when God disciplined you At the time, you cried out, God, why would you do this to me? And you look back and say, okay, now I know why God did that to me. Thank him for that. Rehearse that. Preach that to yourself. One of the mistakes Israel made, parents, I'm going to talk to you for a second. One of the mistakes that Israel made is one generation did not teach these things to the next. So this generation that just got saved, they were good. But the problem is their kids that came after them. They failed to pass it on to their children. Parents, when is the time you saw the Lord's faithfulness in your life? Tell that to your kids. Teach them the Lord's faithfulness in your life. Teach it to the next generation. We have a bunch of kids here. Kids. Ask your parents sometime this week, Dad, Mom, tell me a story of something great God did in your life. Ask your parents that. Let's teach it to our kids. So, Deborah's Plea to Israel let's sing about this, let's talk about this, let's pray about this, let's speak it, let's preach it to ourselves so we can stay in God's love. Because when I start with the gospel, and this is how I'll finish when I start with the gospel, and I preach that to myself, then all of a sudden the commands that God tells me to do, I start to view those commands in light of the gospel. One of the questions we ask you a lot, do you see God as a giver or just someone that requires obedience? Meaning the commands that God gives you in the Bible, is he giving you his best and saying, do these because this is how life works best and it'll go better for you if you do this? Or do you see these commands as, well, God just wants me to suffer. uh, How do I view God? And so when I preach the gospel to myself, here's what I realize. If God loved me enough to sacrifice his son for my life, that's the gospel. If God loved me enough to sacrifice his son for for my life, then maybe he's guided by that same love when he gives commands to me. Did you catch that? If God loved me enough in the gospel to sacrifice his son to give me salvation, maybe that same love that we sing about every week is the same love that guides his commands of, don't be greedy. Don't look lustfully at another woman. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands. Maybe that same love of the gospel that guided him to save you is that same love that he gives you the commands to say, Here's how life works best. Obey me and live in peace and joy. That starts with preaching the gospel. Now I can listen to myself. I gotta love my wife today. She didn't treat me well yesterday. She said something smart. Why do I gotta do that? That's listening to myself. Or, Jesus set me free and I'm free to not hold grudges. And even though Emily... Said a comment? And she didn't do I'm not like airing out her troubles in stage. I'm making this up. <laughs> Emily's like, what did I say? Even though she didn't treat me like I wanted yesterday, the command is love your wife as Christ loved the church. And so because he loved me there and he gives me that command today, I will freely obey that because his love is best. Preach the gospel to yourself. I need you guys to preach the gospel to me. You need one another to preach the gospel to each other. As we planted Hill City, we're a year in. Our stated goal the first year was create a culture of gospel fluency. Do you hear the the gospel in every song we sing? Is that pretty evident? Because we know that that same gospel that frees us in salvation is the same gospel that frees us to delight in what God has for us, his commands. So as we receive communion today, Hill City, may we remember and may we celebrate God's victory in our lives, the same God who lovingly gives us commands for his glory and for our joy. Let's celebrate that today as we take communion.